1: Hallelujah and hello, Higher Side Chatters, trying to stay sane in a world gone mad. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and I think it's safe to say that the coronavirus chaos is affecting us all right now. We all know hardworking people who are suddenly without jobs, successful business owners who suddenly can't conduct business, and friends and family that have been so traumatized they'll probably never shake hands or hug you again without at least thinking about this mess. And these are all consequences that have more to do with a virus panic than they do an actual virus problem. And it seems like those of us who said to fear not are being vindicated this week, as the models used to whip up this frenzy have been revised by a factor of 10. We've seen documents that show the CDC and World Health Organization have used every trick in the book to move unrelated deaths into the COVID-19 column. And more healthcare workers and data experts are seeing through the smokescreen of fear and panic and realizing the numbers just aren't adding up. But my greatest fear is that this is not just a one-off event, but might actually in fact become the new normal. Turning the social spigots and financial faucets on and off at the will of the nefarious militaristic medical cartel... Which brings me to today's powerhouse guest, Dr. Andrew Kaufman, who has been making the rounds, doing what he can to beat back the beast and educate those willing to listen. He now works primarily in forensic psychiatry, but has an impressive, wide ranging medical background and education, including a Bachelor of Science in Molecular Biology, a Physician's Assistant Certification, a Doctor of Medicine, and was even a teaching assistant in the Molecular Biology Lab at MIT. Hard to argue with that. And I expect this to be just the medicine we need, so let's do it. The CDC Operation Exposer, Hype Bubble Deflator, and a true thorn in the side of the corporate medical cartel, Dr. Kaufman, welcome to The Higher Side.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much for having me, Greg. It's really a pleasure to be here, and uh, I've been a fan and listener of your show for several years, so it's really, I'm a little bit nervous, to be honest with you, <laughs> but I have an important message to get out to people, so of course... The opportunity and your platform is valuable for that effort.
1: Oh, well, you're too kind. You're too kind. And I have heard you on Crow's show a couple of times. I've watched the series that you've been doing on YouTube. And it was a pleasant surprise to hear David Ike focus mainly on what he's learned from you specifically in his recent viral interview on the subject. I'm sure it's been a very busy couple of weeks. So I really do appreciate you talking with us today. And I guess to kick this off, because I do want this to be something we can use to bring more of our friends and family into alignment with us rather than what they're seeing on cable news. So, can you elaborate on your own medical background and where you started to see that something wasn't right with the conventional paradigm? Because it typically seems like the ones who go through these systems are the ones who have the most faith in them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I did do a lot of things. Before I went to medical school, even in addition to what you mentioned, I collected case surveillance data for AIDS with the New York Health Department and the CDC. So I have experience of knowing how that data is collected and compiled for the statistics that they're putting out and also had experience in the healthcare industry when I had a medical device startup. So that gave me some unique insights to how the business of medicine works. But really, what was the biggest factor was that when I started going through my clinical training, and this was, you know, after I already had two years of clinical experience working in cancer medicine, and I was so busy and overwhelmed and learning during that time, I couldn't really see what was going on until I looked back at it later. But when I was in my psychiatry training, I began noticing that By prescribing the medications that we were told was the treatment for these problems, you know, such as depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, people were not getting better. And for most drugs, I actually couldn't see any positive effect at all from the patients that I was working with. And some of them seemed to get some temporary relief, but then the same problems came back and they were still suffering. So I began to question this, and one of the things I was fortunate to be at Duke in my training because they emphasized evidence-based medicine, which is kind of a buzzword. That means you should see what the medical science says when you make decisions about how you're going to diagnose and treat illness. So we had a special weekly seminar that everyone participated in where we were sometimes assigned articles to look at ahead of time, and then we would present them, and people would Critique the methods and say, you know, well, could you actually make the conclusions the authors made based upon the experiment and the data? And it was very open minding or surprising to see that many times that you actually couldn't really tell much from these studies. So there was one big study that really opened my eyes up. When a drug company applies to the FDA to get approval for a new medication, They have to submit all of the studies they performed on it, but when it comes to publication where other people can read it, they only publish studies that show something that's favorable to their drug. So if they're, let's say, testing an antidepressant, they might do 10 different trials with maybe 50 to 100 people in each trial. So let's say that four of the trials show that the drug is beneficial and six of the trials show no benefit from the drug. What they would do is they would publish the four trials that showed a benefit. And if you're looking in the literature, there would be a bias that shows that the medication is beneficial. So there was a researcher, I believe he was from outside of psychiatry research, and he put in a freedom of information request to the FDA to get the studies that were submitted for the application to get approval. And that included all of the studies that were not published that we didn't have access to previously. And what he did is he combined all of the results into one set of data and did something called a meta-analysis. And this is a pretty powerful thing because you can actually include sometimes hundreds of studies and combine them into one to see what the overall effect shows. And when he did this for a particular antidepressant, What he showed is essentially there was no benefit at all. It was just a placebo. So, of course, when I read that and that was the conclusion, well, I said, well, then why are we prescribing these drugs? Yeah. Because everybody else in the room also realized what the significance of that was. And there was kind of an aha moment. And everybody then went back to work and continued to prescribe the drugs without a second thought. And this just really bothered me. So I kept reading more and more. And in my own practice, I kept prescribing less and less. And I focused on psychotherapy and other things that I could do. But as I left my training and began working as a faculty member, and I kind of specialized in working in a criminal justice setting, so I was in jails and places like that, and Basically, the only reason they really hired you was just to be a prescription machine. Mm -hmm. They wanted you to, you know, see as many people as possible. So it would be cheaper for them and expected you to just write a lot of prescriptions. And this made me very uncomfortable because I saw that it wasn't really helpful. And eventually I was able to get out of that kind of a situation and find a little niche area to work where they tolerated me taking people off medications. So as I was in this position and feeling more comfortable about what I was doing, I just started to do some additional research about what's going on in other areas of medicine. And that's when I thought about my prior experience working with cancer patients. And I remember that virtually no patients in the end got better that I worked with. Almost every single one had died of their cancer, despite all of the very, very expensive and sometimes heroic and very punishing treatment that they were experiencing. And as I branched out in different areas of medicine, I saw lots of evidence from their own literature and studies that almost all of the treatments that are provided don't cure any illness. They seemingly perpetuate a chronic illness state and require you to have ongoing treatment and take medications forever. And there have been several whistleblower types from the pharmaceutical industry telling us that yes, their goal is that every single American by the time they're 50 years old should be taking a certain number of medications. And then as they get older, it should be more and more. Because that's a great business model if you can sell a drug and then have someone take it for the rest of their life. And then when I started exploring other healing methods outside of that model, Some of them based on a traditional medicine that was in our own country before the Exner Report and Rockefeller kind of put a lot of those medical schools out of business, like homeopathic medicine and naturopathic medicine. I started learning about plants and herbs. I started learning about what is the real cause of disease. And I think it's mostly related to the thousands of toxins that we're exposed to in our daily lives. And some of them we don't have so much control over, but many of them we actually unknowingly or unwittingly put inside our own bodies. And as I slowly started to work with people, based on these principles, what I'm finding is that people get better and are actually completely cured of many diseases that the medical community would provide lifelong medications or say is not curable. And I'm talking about things, you know, like diabetes and heart failure and infections. And mental illness like anxiety and schizophrenia Mm. I mean they certainly never ever said that anyone could be cured of schizophrenia during all of my psychiatric experience and training and I found that with some very simple techniques people can be completely free of the symptoms and the emotional turmoil that comes with that severe illness
1: Wow. Wow. I mean, that was something that was on my outline for a little bit further down the road. But since you just mentioned it, and I am kind of part of two communities that seem susceptible to schizophrenia being conspiracy minded people and heavy marijuana users, these communities, I mean, sometimes people do slip into this, I guess, state of schizophrenia. But given your background, what do you think that is? I mean, in your little thing that you had written to me, you said, is it a demon? Is it a parasite? Is it a demon parasite? And those are questions that I find pretty provocative. But I guess using that as an example of some thing that people think can't be cured and maybe can, what would you say about that example of schizophrenia?
0: Yeah, well, it's a really interesting example. And I certainly don't have definitive answers. And that's true with many of these alternative hypotheses, because Since our medical paradigm has to do with germ theory and infections causing illness, there's no funded research available to look at alternative theories and causes. And that's even true for a disease like schizophrenia that has really not been shown, like all the research on it thus far has not really shown that much in the way of what's causing it, except for this one small area of research that I had, of course, learned about, but In mainstream medical circles, most people just completely dismiss it. But there is study after study that shows that people with schizophrenia have a certain type of parasite called Toxoplasma gondii. The illness that's related to it, some people may know about from AIDS because when your immune system is very suppressed, some AIDS patients have got this disease called Toxoplasmosis. And then people also know about it from being pregnant because cats, like house cats, are actually an animal that harbors this parasite as part of its life cycle. And when people have cats in the house and they get pregnant, it's often advised for the pregnant woman to not change the litter box and to stay away from the cat to avoid being infected with this parasite. So there are some studies that show large percentages of people with schizophrenia in their studies have this parasite in their body and some evidence even in the brain. So this really got me thinking, and I had heard about another natural healer, Dr. Jennifer Daniels, who is a big proponent of turpentine. And turpentine, which by the way, is a natural product, it's the oil fraction after you distill The sap from a spruce pine tree. So it's not something that's made in a petrochemical factory. And it's been used in traditional medicine for quite a long time. In fact, if you look at the Merck Manual, which is an encyclopedic index of all therapeutic materials or drugs or agents, including naturals, botanicals, from 1898, you'll see that actually turpentine is listed as a treatment for gosh, like 50 or 60 different conditions, including things like syphilis. And what it really does is it helps dissolve some of the toxins that keep parasites in your body because parasites are freeloaders. And so they only hang around when there is free food and when everything is nice and comfortable. So since she... Claim to work with a few people with schizophrenia and give them a turpentine protocol. I kind of put these two things together because turpentine is well documented to help remove parasites from the body, and then there's the scientific study about the parasites. So when I had the possibility to work with someone and they were willing to undergo this protocol, they had just amazing results. I remember getting a call from the parents saying, My child is back. And that was just amazing. Wow. So I followed this up with some discussions with Jerry Marzinski. And he's a psychologist who spent decades working mostly in like forensic mental hospitals where the criminally insane would be. He did work in some criminal justice facilities. But basically, he worked with people with schizophrenia who had been violent in some way. And that's why they were there. And what he found is that if he instructed some of his patients with schizophrenia to read Psalm 23 from the Bible, that it made the voices go away for a period of time. They did come back, but they also didn't like it. So in schizophrenia, what happens is that people have this experience that they hear voices talking to them. And in conventional medicine, we're told that this is a hallucination, like a Trick that your brain plays on you, and we all know that if you take too much of certain drugs, you can have hallucinations and we kind of explain it that way, but after he heard that the voices actually protested when the person was reading psalm twenty three like they told them to stop it, and then they went quiet. he thought he was on to something, and I think that's where the original idea of a possible demon came into play. Mm. So he actually told me about another method called the That's a Lie program. I can't remember the name of the woman, but this was a woman who in her 20s had a psychotic break and she figured out this method of trying to stop it. And it's basically that when the voices talk to her, she would just say, that's a lie. And she started off saying it out loud and she kept with it every time they talked. And after doing this for a couple of days, she said they started quieting down and eventually completely went away and she was able to go back to a normal life. So I happened to be working with a teenager with this problem when I had heard about this and I had tried three different antipsychotic medications with them because they do quiet down the voices in about 40% of the time, but they don't do anything beyond that. So usually the person is still pretty miserable and can't have a normal life because of the other symptoms. So since he had failed three different medications, I thought, you know, it's time to try something different. And he started off with Psalm 23 and he got the same exact benefit. And then I introduced him to the That's a Lie strategy. I saw him two weeks later and. I saw something that I had never seen in my career before, that not only did he tell me the voices completely went away, but he was smiling. He was showing joy of life. And when people have schizophrenia, they get what's called negative symptoms, where they don't express emotion, they don't show enthusiasm or excitement, they don't have motivation to engage in activities, they're not interested in things. They're like just a blank, empty vessel. And I'd never seen anyone recover from that in my entire career from any conventional treatment. And this was the first time I saw someone actually look like a well-adjusted teenage boy after being like I just described. And it's even hard for me to believe that something so simple could have such amazing results.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that is a great example. And I didn't expect our first half hour to be about <laughs> schizophrenia, but Me it's all so interesting. And, you know, these are organic interviews. But you also earlier kind of broke down a prescription template that you saw in the journey that is used across several different sectors of medicine. And I think that's kind of an important framing. And I do want this to be about more than the isolated coronavirus incident, but we got to mention that, and let's maybe talk about viruses and germ theory overall. And I know casting any doubt on this is such a taboo that just mentioning it will lose people, but bright minds like Rudolf Steiner and Royal Raymond Reif had realized that viruses are more like excretions of a poisoned cell rather than the cause of any disease. And even the current head of the National Institute of Health gave a talk on exosomes recently, making a very similar point, if you want to go with an official source. So I'm hearing more experts getting on board with this, not less. And when we have something that many take as a given, we really have to walk it back and show the flaws and how we got here and how there really has been resistance all along the way, even though it's been marginalized. But what would you say to people in this regard, in the overall case for germ theory and how we mentally think about viruses
0: well greg this is a really really important point because we've all been raised in a society that has accepted the germ theory paradigm as truth as a law but it's still called germ theory for a reason because it is a theory and i'm going to tell you how it actually is a theory that has not been proven but actually disproven. but the reason it's so important is because since we all accept this, and of course, I accepted this all my life, way before medical school, everybody is aware of germ theory, which states basically that there's some kind of organism that we can't see that comes either from another person or from some other source in the environment and invades us and causes disease. That when I talk to people about this, they always wanna talk about other knowledge that's based upon this and they want an explanation for those other things, like, for example, contagion. But the thing is that if the fundamental underlying truth is actually false, then everything built upon it falls down like a house of cards. And it doesn't matter what the real explanation is. The important point is the explanation is not from a germ. So germ theory was originally conceptualized in the early to mid-1800s, actually several decades before Pasteur, but Pasteur is mostly credited with being the sort of patriarch of germ theory. And Pasteur himself was somewhat fraudulent because he plagiarized most of his materials and didn't really devise any of his own experiments. Many of them he copied off of a famous scientist named Antoine Béchamp and Beisham was a hardcore scientist. He really was the kind of scientist that is just in the laboratory doing research because he wants to figure out how things work. And Beisham's experiments were about fermentation. So they were using fermentation as a model of infectious disease because they were interpreting experiments on fermentation and applying them to people's diseases which is kind of a weird thing because fermentation is how we make wine and beer. So we definitely don't think about that process as akin to disease, but what it has to do with is that there are microorganisms that are breaking down dead plant and animal tissue. If it's animals, they call it putrefaction. But Baicham's original experiments seem to show that in order to have fermentation, the microorganism had to come from the air or from the environment. And that's really what Pasteur ran with. He actually repeated that experiment, but kind of made a spectacle out of it because he went around France and collected air from different vineyards because, you know, France is a big wine country. So it was like a big publicity stunt every time he did it and showed that there was fermentation from microorganisms in the air. But Béchamp continued to do further experiments, and from those experiments, he actually was able to show that it didn't need to come from the air at all, that it could actually come from the plant material itself. And this was a major breakthrough and really told us that it doesn't lend itself to germ theory at all, because then we would be saying that disease comes from within us rather than from the outside. And so it was a very important experiment. But later on, as germ theory progressed, nonetheless, and it became adopted, even though Pasteur is rumored on his deathbed to say that he was wrong about the whole thing, and I think the quote goes something like, the germ is nothing, the terrain is everything. That was to Claude Bernard, who had some experiment that showed that Pasteur made him suppress until after his death. But what happened is that this other scientist came along, Robert Koch and he was a German microbiologist and physician, and he developed a common-sense set of rules, and those rules would say, well, if you can meet these rules, then you've shown that microorganism A causes disease B. And it's pretty straightforward. You have to show that there is a cluster of symptoms that defines an illness, right? So like, for example, with COVID-19, the symptoms would be, you know, the same as the flu or pneumonia, some upper respiratory symptoms, a cough fever, perhaps difficulty breathing, typical stuff, but that's one constellation of symptoms. And then you have to show that you can isolate and purify the infectious agent out of those people with those symptoms, and that in healthy people, you would not be able to isolate and purify the same pathogen or microorganism. And then you would take the purified organism that you believed to cause the disease from the people with those symptoms, and you'd put it in a healthy host. And you would then cause the same illness in that host. And then the final step is that you would then be able to isolate that organism from the sick host that you infected. And if you can do all those four steps, you've conclusively proven that a germ causes a disease. What is the really astonishing part is that since those steps were laid out and in a very common sense way, there's actually never been any scientific studies that showed those steps are true for any infectious agent, especially viruses.
1: Interesting. Interesting. And you mentioned that the terrain is everything in that quote. And I believe that's the alternative model to germ theory is terrain theory. Is that right?
0: Yes, absolutely. And I have a really nice metaphor for that that was given to me by uh, David Parker, which is this, because they had the idea that these germs cause disease before they had the scientific experiments to look at this. And one of the findings that they had that they felt supported this was that when they looked at disease tissue under a microscope, they saw bacteria, Mm -hmm. right? But let's say that we were... Observing like those scientists were, and we saw a house on fire, and there were firefighters there who were squirting water at the fire. Well, let's say that we were proponents of this kind of theory, and we would then see the firefighters as causing the fire because they happened to be there. And so the scientists who saw the bacteria in the diseased tissue just assumed that they were causing the disease and didn't investigate other possibilities.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, this is what I'm hearing more often that with the exosome conversation, a lot of people are saying, well, your body recognizes a toxin and then it's your cells excrete these pieces of debris that we call viruses. And they're actually kind of sponge like absorbent material that's trying to absorb that toxin and then flush it out of the body. Is that how you see it too? Or am I messing something up?
0: No, no, you're absolutely right. And I know there's a lot of information to sort of get there. But even before viruses were what they call viruses were ever seen under the microscope, because these are super tiny particles, like on the order of nanometers, which is a billionth of a meter, they had to wait for the electron microscope to be invented. And at the time it was invented, you know, they had no ability to look at gene sequences or anything like that the technology wasn't there and they already thought that there was some small particle and they even called it a virus because the word virus means poison or noxious agent and the term was around as a potential cause of disease long before any viral particle was visualized under a microscope But since they already were thinking they're looking for some small thing under the microscope that's causing these diseases that that were not explained by bacteria because they didn't find bacteria, you know, things like polio. When they found the particle, they said, aha, there's the virus that's causing the disease. And they didn't bother to do all the experiments to see, well, what is this particle? What could it be? Let me see. Let's test some ideas. They instead put all their effort on to This is a cause of disease, and we're going to show that that's the case in some way without using Koch's postulates because they were unable to satisfy those. So as time went on, they were identifying these particles as being all these different viral illnesses because they had these microscopes and they could do it. And exosomes weren't discovered as a possible explanation for this until about 30 years ago. And I'm not sure exactly how it came about, but I suspect that it was related to the gene sequence, that they saw these particles and then they took the genetic material inside the particles and sequenced it and then realized that it matched human genetic material. So they must have said, well, it must come from our own cells then if it has our own DNA. And then this whole field of exosome science, which is sort of a sub-branch of virology it's become, or it's intimately related to the study of viruses, has blossomed. And like you said, there are tons of papers actually comparing viruses to exosomes. But the thing is that they always interpret this evidence from that germ theory perspective. So they say, well, it must be that a virus put its DNA, mixed it with our DNA, And that's why we see human DNA in exosomes and viral DNA at the same time. And they never think, well, is it possible that what they've been looking at the whole time that they thought was viruses from the beginning were actually exosomes? Hmm. So you were exactly right about what you said. So exosomes are our own body's defense mechanism. You could consider them part of the immune system. And there have been exosomes shown that have receptors on them for the immune system called MHC or major histocompatibility complex and that's the same receptor that's used for tissue typing like in organ transplants. And part of what these exosomes do is they are capable of gobbling up toxins and there's one excellent study I found where it shows them gobbling up bacterial endotoxins and allowing the cells to survive in the presence of these toxins which would normally just kill all of the cells. They also are involved in communication, and that's thought actually to be the biggest role. So let's say that there's a part of your body that gets some kind of toxic exposure. They would be able to, the cells in that part of your body that is damaged, would put out way more exosomes than normal because our cells are always expressing these. They probably just serve as baseline communication. But then when there's an infection, when we're exposed to ionizing radiation, when we have psychological distress, or I call it psychological shock, if we have any acute illness practically, I mean, some papers just say any disease state, our cells are induced to put out a lot more of these things to communicate to the rest of our body what's going on so that they can, you know, be prepared, so they can help in removing the toxins or addressing whatever the problem is. So if you are measuring exosomes in a person who's sick, you're going to find them for sure. Any person who's sick, you're going to find them. And if you develop a test that tests the genetic material of an exosome, you're going to find that test to be positive in almost any illness because that's how our body responds to illness.
1: This is basically what's going on right now with the coronavirus thing and why people should maybe not be as afraid as the news is telling them, right?
0: Yeah, well, absolutely. And, you know, I think there's two ways of looking at this. You know, one way is easier for most people to grasp that just look at the numbers of mortality and compare it to other common things. Like, for example, in a typical year, and across the world, there are about a half a million deaths from the regular flu. And that's an average year. We had 80,000 deaths from the flu in the United States in 2017 18 season. And right now, I believe that the total number of reported COVID 19 deaths for the entire planet is less than that flu season in the United States only. And we make up a pretty small portion of the world's population. So that's an important thing to look at because you'll see that if we're facing something that's not really killing any extra people than usual, then why would we be taking these extreme measures to prevent it? But on the other end, I've started to look at all of the papers where they claim to have discovered this virus and prove that it causes disease and how they developed the test. And I'll tell you that on a cursory read of this paper, you see that all the effort is put into the test. They were just interested in the genetic material to make a test for it before they even tried to even isolate the virus, which they didn't do. And they developed this based on only five patients. And they started with seven, but two of them didn't show the same genetic material. So they just discounted them. And I'll tell you a really fascinating thing is that they did not include a negative control in this study. So everyone who's ever done a scientific experiment knows that you need to have a control for your experiment in order to distinguish what is an effect of whatever you're studying versus what might be a baseline effect. And you have to be able to tell both. So they would have to have, you know, at least seven other patients who were healthy and get their lung fluid and show that they didn't find this genetic material in there but they didn't do that at all so if they were going to let's say apply for a FDA approval i'm saying the FDA has a very low bar okay so that's my starting point but if they were going to apply for FDA approval for a diagnostic test they would have to not only have studies with a control group if they only had 5 patients they would just be laughed out of the office they would be told not to waste their time to even put in an application so Why is it that with this level of poor science that wouldn't even be able to apply to the FDA, we're actually doing this test all over the world. And we are telling people that everyone who has a positive test has some new scary viral illness that if they're not careful, they're going to die from. And the test is completely meaningless. There was one group who tried to study the false positive rate or the error rate. And you can't actually calculate that because since they never isolated and purified a virus and showed that it caused disease, they have no gold standard to compare it to. So like if it were a real illness that was really caused by a virus, they would have 100 people, they'd be able to isolate that virus from 100 people and then give that 100 people the diagnostic test and see how many of them were positive or negative. And they would have also 100 people who are healthy, and they wouldn't be able to isolate the virus from a single one of those people. And they would see how many people in that group had a positive test. And then they could calculate the error rate. But it's not possible to do that in this case, because isolating the virus just hasn't been done at all. And so you just have to guess, and a group out of Hong Kong tried to estimate it based on giving people a test, then waiting a certain period of time to see if they got sick. And then they used some mathematical modeling. And they came up with an 80% false positive rate. Right. That means that four out of five people who had a positive test had no illness at all. (laughs) So that is just wildly inaccurate. I mean, I can do better with a blindfold and a dart.
1: Right, that's such an important point because a lot of people are assuming the test is 100% accurate. I'm hearing stories of friends, brothers, coworkers, mothers who, quote, got COVID-19. And we also see these crazy high numbers on TV. And I've been trying to explain why I'm not worried about that by laying it out with the three T's. The first one being testing, which, as you said, can be up to 80% inaccurate and isn't actually seeing what people think it's looking for anyway. And the second being treatment, because these drugs and treatments are harsh, usually being used on older, already sick people. And if somebody dies who, quote, had the coronavirus, but also got a bunch of these drugs pumped into them in an aggressive treatment protocol from hospital workers in panic mode, And these drugs do have precautions and side effects for older people with high blood pressure in particular. And, well, there are going to be deaths because of this process, but surely they won't be categorized like that. And third is trading one illness for another. Again, citing the Bloomberg article where 99% of Italy's dead had other conditions, lumping in flu and pneumonia deaths marking COVID as the cause in assumed and presumed cases, as the CDC has directed right in their documents, even saying, quote, it is unlikely we will be following up on these records. So it's like saying, just make your life easy and mark it down, wink, wink. And that's what the hospitals do, because there is no independent thought or nuance in these situations. It's just following orders mainly because doctors and nurses and hospitals are so scared of being sued. And so why would you ever stray from the legal cover of saying, hey, I just did exactly what the CDC directed. But (laughs) I think those three factors of testing, treatment, and trading illnesses can pretty much allow the system to create any numbers they want to create But even with all that said, there's still going to be some people sitting there saying, well, this is all interesting, maybe you're making some good points, but what's actually making people sick? Wuhan, Italy, New York, we hear these huge numbers and can't process that it would all be over nothing. But is there something making people more sick than normal or not? If not, it's really a tough case to make in the face of what people hear from the traditional media out there.
0: Yeah, well, absolutely. You make many good points there. And even with the imperfection of the reporting, and clearly they're telling us to report any deaths as COVID 19. I mean, the CDC report uses the word suspect. So they basically, if you have suspicion, that it might be COVID-19, you're told to just put that as the cause of death, as if it's definitive. And you've been told that if the person is already dead, don't even do a test on them if they haven't been tested. Just put down COVID-19 as the cause of death. So they're really trying to inflate these numbers. But if you look closely at actually what happened in countries like Italy and in Wuhan and Hubei province, what you'll find is that the people who actually died were already very sick. Right. In Italy, the government there is doing a good job trying to give more specific information, and I heard they're actually going and reviewing all the death certificates and looking at medical records to see what the real cause of death is because they followed a similar strategy. But what they said is that 50% of the people who died had three or more serious illnesses, and... had one or two serious illnesses, only a tiny sliver. So this could simply be the fact that if we just said that people who had pneumonia and the flu had COVID-19 instead, it would give the appearance that there's a new serious illness. But a lot of people die from influenza and pneumonia every year. And everything they're describing about the symptoms and how people die is totally consistent with those deaths. So if you simply relabel things, it gives this appearance, but it's not actually true. And I can't find really any evidence that tells me there's any new disease that's novel in any way in terms of the degree of mortality or in the clinical presentation. And even Dr. Fauci, who... You know, says one thing to one audience and says another thing to another audience. He wrote an editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine, meant to be read by doctors and scientists, that he said basically, COVID 19 is like the seasonal flu with a mortality rate of 0.1%, which is one in 1,000. So he's even telling us indirectly through this limited audience that there's no real illness to be concerned about. It's just really astonishing because you can simply rely on public officials and public documents from the FDA, the CDC, other public health agencies like the New York Health Department, and you can see right from their policies and statements that there's something going on here that is fudging up all the statistics, and they're rolling out tests that aren't accurate, and it's really quite astonishing. But, you know, I'm only presenting evidence from scientific papers and official sources here. I'm not saying anything that is from a questionable conspiracy theorist type of source because you just don't need to. It's all right there out in the open. You just have to look for it. You have to turn off your TV and go to the real information from the source.
1: Well said. And this is kind of the perspective of a lot of the people I've been listening to lately and the only thing i can think of that seems like a symptom that might be different than the flu or pneumonia is this trend of people having a really difficult time breathing and maybe liquid in the lungs it's some kind of thing that people in my inner circles are hearing on tv and it's scaring the hell out of them in terms of like yeah well maybe there's a fate worse than death if you have these kind of conditions that people are are talking about and i guess i would ask is that a normal symptom of advanced pneumonia or is that something different
0: well you know without having a specific case and a medical record in front of me to look at i can't tell you for any specific person exactly what's going on but certainly if anyone has access to that information i would be happy to review that and give you my opinion Mm -hmm. but what you just described occurs in influenza and regular old pneumonia in fact, the whole reason that they do a chest x-ray to diagnose it is they see fluid on the lungs because that's what shows up on the chest x-ray that tells them there's pneumonia. And you can have pneumonia from the flu, and you can have pneumonia with regular bacterial pneumonia. And of course, pneumonia results in lots of secretions in the airways because that's your body's way of trying to get rid of whatever the offending agent is. And that blocks the air exchange. So you get shortness of breath. And, um, you know, any hospital ICU doctor or nurse can tell you that half of their patients in a medical ICU are there with pneumonia. So they need ventilators. So nothing you described is anything that is atypical in terms of dealing with people with various types of pneumonia. But let me say that the people that are generally ill with this, you know, they have underlying disease. And I think there's a kind of a more important thing going on right now, too, that is further giving the appearance of more people dying, and that's that they have closed down almost all of the hospital beds to people with regular illnesses. So in my career, you know, I've worked in lots of different kinds of hospitals in urban and rural areas, and I've never seen an empty hospital much more often I've seen that there's been bed shortages and people were backed up in emergency departments because there was no capacity for them to be hospitalized. But now like I've been getting calls from doctors and paramedics and nurses and other health professionals who are starting to question things because they see with their own eyes that things are not adding up. And they're seeing empty hospitals and some of them, like there's one particular suburban hospital in a large city, that had 450 beds and they closed all but 30 of those 450 beds so less than 10% of the beds for regular people who are sick the rest of the hospital was dedicated only to covid-19 patients but there were none there or maybe only a few so all of the people in the community the elderly people the people with cancer with heart failure with kidney disease with dementia and Alzheimer's, who would be going to the hospital and maybe probably dying in the hospital, maybe some of them getting better and going back home, they don't have access to the hospital now. So they're essentially just dying at home. And for the people living in those neighborhoods, they're not used to seeing curses come to their neighborhood and pick up dead bodies from their neighbors. And the paramedics and EMTs are not used to going to 911 calls and seeing dead bodies, you know, normally they would be like a young person who has trauma that they're helping or that kind of thing, or they're just taking people to the hospital. And what they're seeing is now people dying at home. So in other words, what I'm saying is that instead of dying in the hospital, people who are ill with serious diseases are dying at home. And it gives the appearance to the public as if there are people dying who didn't die last year. And they assume that it's from COVID-19. I think the way that it's been orchestrated to give the appearance of a serious pandemic and a new devil to worry about that's going to come and kill you. But actually the total numbers of mortality, according to the CDC, are a little bit down from last year. And there's explanations for that too, because people aren't on the roads. They're not getting into drunk driving accidents because all the bars are closed. So there is reason why less people would be dying this year. And that's what the most recent data from the CDC shows.
1: Hmm. Very, very interesting. And so when it comes to the protocols that we're seeing in response to the coronavirus scare, the social distancing, the closing of businesses, the financial bailout package, the call for everyone to be tested or worse, everyone to get a vaccine, I guess talk to us about your biggest concerns here. and how you see this thing advancing if people don't start to see through it and continue to obey a corrupt system out of fear.
0: Well, if we were gonna cover all my concerns, we might need a third hour. (laughs) But, you know, as a psychiatrist, I think what I'm most qualified to talk about is the psychological effects that this is having on people. So first of all, being consumed by fear puts a lot of stress on your body, it suppresses your immune function, your body doesn't process nutrition, it doesn't repair itself the same way when you're living in fear, you're just focused on survival. And that can certainly take its toll. And it also has an effect on your ability to be able to interpret and take in new information because you're really just focused on protection
1: and survival. And sorry to interrupt, but stress and fear do induce exosomes. Is that right? Yes, absolutely.
0: Hmm. Absolutely. And they can even cause illness. I mean, there is an interaction between our mind and body and it's one whole thing. And I think most people know that they're much more susceptible to become ill when they're under a lot of emotional stress, right? This happens all the time when you have a big deadline at work or you're burning the midnight oil and depriving yourself of sleep studying or you're facing some kind of uh, trouble that you're in, maybe, you know, with the IRS or with some criminal matter, or you're going through a divorce, and it's contentious, you know, all those situations result in people being more susceptible to getting ill. You know, we've seen people in that state, and they look all gray and pasty, and their eyes are bloodshot, and you know, they're not functioning well. But the social distancing also is a really big factor, because what you have is that people are afraid of each other. Some people are even not hugging their own children for fear of spreading this. And I mean, imagine the devastating effect that could have on a child, that their parent does not want to give them affection. I've walked down the street with my children, and when someone's coming the other way, they look down and cross the street. It's like they're ashamed, they're afraid, they know it's wrong, but they're so much in fear that they do it. And the masks, I think the masks are really the worst possible thing. You know, we have something like over a hundred different muscles in our face in order to make endless expressions. And this is one of the main ways that we communicate with each other. You know, most of our communication really is without words. And when you cover your face with a mask, then you're hiding that from other people. You can't relate to other people in the same way. You have to rely only on language. And, you know, think about like, who wears masks? like that, right? It's bandits, criminals to hide their identity. And so it seems to me like it's created an environment where everybody is in fear and everybody is looking to take advantage of the other person in some kind of criminal way. And I certainly am concerned that if the access to food and other supplies and money because, you know, so many people have zero income right now and they're running out of funds, that this mentality is going to lead to violence and looting. I mean, we certainly can't sustain this type of thing in the long term.
1: Right, right. That is concerning and uh great advice. And this has been really eye opening. Of course, to some people, the things that we've talked about will sound a little extreme or it's difficult to kind of unravel such a giant machine and say that it's all wrong. And this interview is right. You know what I mean? It's just a lot to, to go against. And again, you're not the only one saying these things. There's a long history of people on the outside saying, Hey, we got to take a serious look at the germ theory and the way our medical system operates. I guess as we're wrapping this thing up, I would ask you if there are maybe some, books or papers out there that you consider the gold standard in making this case? If we have people out there who just still aren't convinced and really want to dig into the right data to further the case, are there certain authors, medical professionals and books you'd recommend?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And let me reiterate your point, because I don't want the people to get the impression that I'm sitting up here, you know, talking down and saying that I have all the answers. I want people to go and look at this information for themselves. I think we all have actually a responsibility to learn about these things and to question the mainstream paradigm. And we could just start off simply saying, well, what's the proof for this? And there's the first book I'm going to recommend, which is really excellent and is quite comprehensive. It's by David Parker and Don Lester, and it's called What Really Makes You Ill? And they approached it right from that perspective, which is why I have so much respect for them. They said, well, we want to accept what mainstream medicine says about the cause of disease. So we're going to actually find the scientific evidence that supports that, where the ideas came from, and we're going to evaluate that. And they went looking for the scientific proof for germ theory, you know, and all the other causes of disease that were told. And what they found is quite astonishing, and you can certainly read about their research, and make your own judgment about how you feel about things. But this is definitely not a time to sit idly by and trust in all of the beliefs that you've held all your life. It's important to challenge things and do some of your own research. So let me give some other examples. If you want to learn about Pasteur and Bécham, there's a book by that title, I think it's called Pasteur and Besham by Ethel Hume. That's an excellent description, both historical and scientific of what went on in the beginning of germ theory. I would definitely recommend Forrest Moretti's books, which talk about vaccines and the role of aluminum and other metals, especially a book called Crooked. I think it's called Crooked, The Cause of Man-Made Illness. And that is a serious piece of scholarship. I definitely recommend Nancy Turner Banks. She has a book, on AIDS, I think it's called AIDS, Diamonds and Opium, yes. something like that. It's easy to find. Perhaps Eustace Mullins, Murder by Injection, that talks about the Exner Report and how Rockefeller and the AMA kind of took over medicine to make it a petrochemical business. Mm-hmm. So yeah, lots of books and I have a big stack to read. You know, I wasn't really that interested in studying viruses before this happened, then I can't wait for the day when I can get back to other topics.
1: (laughs) You and me both.
0: But this is where I'm at right now, and it's the most important thing.
1: Right on. Yes, I agree with you. And I would throw in a couple other ones I've been looking at recently. Goodbye Germ Theory, Ending a Century of Medical Fraud by Dr. William Trebing. Virus Mania, How the Medical Industry Continually Invents Epidemics, Making Billion-Dollar Profits at Our Expense, pretty on the nose. Those are two that have 4.5 star ratings on Amazon for whatever that's worth. But there are books out there, guys. You know, This isn't just a few rogue, uneducated people out there. This is a, a lot of people who are outside of that money-making machine that are saying, hey, something isn't right here. So, No shortage of resources. I guess I just would uh, reiterate that for people.
0: Yeah. And Greg, I was about to say virus mania, actually. I'm about halfway into that book right now, and it is excellent research. And I thought of one more that a lot of people have asked about because it's the book where those experiments about contagion with the Spanish flu are described, and that's called The Invisible Rainbow by Arthur Furstenberg.
1: Yes, yes. Another one I have been reading lately, and it's crazy to look at the history of electricity and seeing how it was used in the medical space in some really strange ways. But it all works to drive home the fact that we have an electrical component to our bodies and it has effects, even if we don't see it much in the devices used today. And that's not even true. EKGs, EEGs, it is used today, but... Uh, Not in the way that it used to be, which was quite crazy when you start reading that book. Absolutely. (laughs) Right on. Damn. Well, this has been so much fun. I'm glad we could fit in all this information. I'm really impressed with your knowledge level on this stuff. I hope these sorts of interviews aren't damaging to your ability to do the work that you do, but I'm very thankful. Please, I guess, let the people know how to follow up on your work, your YouTube channel, all that good stuff that we like to leave them with.
0: Yes, thank you so much. So I would definitely encourage people to check out my YouTube channel. And on there, there's a scientific presentation about the virus exosome issue. It's the one called Special Report, and I hope to follow that up with a subsequent presentation in the next week. And the channel's called Medicamentum Authentica. That's M-E-D-I-C-A-M-E-N-T-U-M, and Authentica, like authentic with an A. And then I am just about to launch my website. I think it will be online by the time this show comes on the air, and that's Andrew Kaufman M D dot com Andrew K A U F and Frank M A N M D like Medical doctor, dot com and I do offer a natural healing consultation service and I certainly would like to hear from people who have questions or who have research that they'd like to contribute to my work.
1: Very cool. Very cool. Well, good luck on that website. And thanks for your time. It's really been a lifelong dream to talk to Andy Kaufman. So I'm glad I could do that today. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you've heard it all over the years. Oh, yes.
0: (laughs) Yes. Thank you very much.
1: Keep fighting the good fight, man. And do take care out there.
0: All right. You too, Greg. It's been a pleasure.
1: Good times, higher side chatters. Good times. Indeed. Dr. Andy Kaufman. Great guest, and I'm very thankful for his time and humbled by him already being aware of and being a listener of this show. That's always very cool for me when I reach out to try to nab an interview and they write back excited about it because they already know the show. The last show with John Kleisick, School World Order, was like that too. Makes me almost proud of myself. Almost. But as for the material Dr. Kaufman got into, I will say that I have sort of changed my tune a little bit, week by week, when it comes to this whole thing. Because when I had Don Lester and David Parker on THC, I thought doubting germ theory was a bit more extreme than it actually is. But I got some great book resources from that episode, and I followed up on them. And funny enough, through Amazon Suggestions, I learned there are a lot of these books. Dr. Kaufman gave us several... Other resources in this interview, too. And they make similar points. Germ theory is only a couple hundred years old. It's largely based on the work of Louis Pasteur, who recanted germ theory on his deathbed. Similarly, to how we hear that Einstein later in life questioned his own work and the absence of an ether. Yet these people's work is still propelled to being a major, unquestionable driver of the science, anyway. And I've also been following the work of another doctor lately, Dr. Thomas Cohen. He's not looking for publicity, so he won't actually do an interview with me. I've asked twice. I'm going to keep trying. And it's something that I both lament and respect at the same time. But he repeatedly points out when it comes to this idea that viruses are not these invisible invaders, they're made out to be, this is actually in line with the leading virologists today. They've given an exosome talk at the National Institute of Health recently. It's dense and dry, and not for regular people like me, but they are having the conversation. It's not fringe. And I'm sure there is a lot of complexity to it, but in the same way your body as a whole pushes out waste it doesn't want, your cells seem to do this too on a smaller scale. And the symptoms of an illness seem to be the nonverbal signal to other life forms in your proximity that there's a danger or a toxin around. It's communicating that something isn't right. And what's really crazy to me is that these symptoms of being sick that we think of as contagious from a germ actually are triggered by seeing someone exhibiting symptoms of a toxin because again, it's a warning signal and your biology wants to communicate the signal further than the area exposed of the actual toxin. Just like Dr. Kaufman said today about yawning and certain biological functions that are contagious. And this is also exactly what plants do. So you know the smell of cut grass that everyone seems to like? That's a chemical released as a defense. And a warning that, hey, some shit's going down. And it's not that other blades of grass or plants can move. But they do communicate that danger. And why wouldn't we have the same mechanisms? So when we talk about things like, quote, boosting the immune system, it's actually a bad way of saying what we really want to say. Because your immune system is what expels these toxins through snot or sneezing or coughing or sweat and fevers. Autoimmune disease, right? Immune system attacking the body or a body full of toxins that it can't get rid of typically damaged by something environmental put in by some shitty corporation. But either way, if you want health, you don't want to boost your immune system. You want to get high-quality structured water into your cells. That's health. It should be uncoupled from language about the immune system. And these are just my current understandings, and I've been digesting a lot of material on this. I'm pretty fatigued by it, actually, at this point but it's just icing on the conspiracy cake that I have no fear of catching a random virus. And of course, as a result, I see vaccines as complete trash science. And that's why I think guys like Bill Gates and Fauci can actually sleep at night, because they probably already know this and think, well, what's the harm in scaring everyone and making $300 billion on vaccines when we know they're not in any real danger? you know, ignoring the damage that vaccines actually cause, I think they justify all this as, well, people are just caught up in the wrong paradigm. So doing this isn't causing as much harm as it would if they released some actual bioweapon or virus that they couldn't really contain. And do you remember the stories of holistic doctor deaths a few years ago? Funny how there's less experts around today who would know that this paradigm should be challenged. And if you want to have a conversation about the magical worldview, and that consciousness drives reality, go back and watch the 2012 Olympic opening ceremony. Do you remember us talking about this? It's all in a medical context. Kids in wall-to-wall hospital beds, under the watchful eye of pyramids around the outside edge. You might remember, but what we didn't know then, that we now know, is that the pattern ends up flexing into the exact cartoon representation we're seeing of COVID-19 on the news. I mean, the 2012 Olympic ceremonies are about a pandemic. And funny that that was 2012, and then we talked to Ross Ben earlier, who made the point that indigenous calendars, Ethiopian calendars, have this year being 2012. Just weird. It's also probably part of why Chris Knowles said last year that he was seeing a lot of virus symbolism in the pop culture and expected something like this to come. Maybe this is what Ritual does. It either subconsciously manipulates us to manifest this reality, or it just provides that extra oomph when they do roll out something like this. (sighs) Anyway, I'm getting way off topic, but I can't really talk to friends about this stuff. My special lady is sort of sick of hearing about it, too. And there's nowhere for the thoughts to go but right here. And I'm sure many of you guys are feeling the same way. There's just no outlet. And this is not like 9 11, where it's a one and done event. You wanna think 9 11 was terrorists? Go ahead. It doesn't change anyone's behavior, really. But this makes us feel like we're in the goddamn twilight zone. I went to Target one day and I saw maybe 20% of people in masks. I went back two days later and it's 90% of people in masks, and several people mean mugging me for not having one. I don't like to be pressured into something like this, but I also don't want any trouble. I quit jujitsu classes way too early to invite trouble into my life, but I just continue to be surprised by the step changes that this thing has taken. Another example, right now, as we speak, the phrase 2 to 3% is trending on Twitter because Dr. Oz said something about 2 to 3% of the population dying would be worth it to open up the economy again. I don't really know what he said, but something in there. But you'll see a lot of comments that say, Imagine being such a heartless asshole that you think losing only 2.3% of children to coronavirus deaths is an acceptable number to sacrifice at the altar of the economy. How much are your kids worth, Dr. Oz? But where are these fucking people when we exploit the third world for half of the bullshit we have in the West? Where are these fucking people... When you look at numbers like 1 in 50 kids getting autism today, or the idea that vaccines hurt just a small amount of people, but it's for the greater good. Those deaths you're willing to accept so that people can be injected with a bunch of bullshit? I mean, look, almost everything we enjoy has a little blood on it somewhere. Unfortunately, that's the system that was built around us, but it's really fucking convenient to pretend you care about deaths in the margins when the goddamn government prompts you to pretend to care. It's just really frustrating, you know? These aren't these people's own thoughts. It's someone on the opposition side saying something, so they have to counterpoint, and they do this moral outrage shit. And again, not even sure there's a virus that one can catch and die from. Are there deaths? Yes. But when you combine the faulty testing the protocols in hospitals, which are killing people. And we didn't even talk about the ventilators yet. Did you know that 80% of people in this situation that are put on ventilators are dying? And that that's a lot more than typically die with ventilator use? And did you realize that you have to be put into a coma to be put on a ventilator? I guess I just didn't think about it. I was expecting them to be kind of like oxygen. You think you're giving people oxygen, but no, these people are unconscious. They're put into a coma. Imagine walking into a hospital with flu-like symptoms that clearly suck but would go away in a week, but instead, the doctor inadvertently puts you down like a trigger-happy veterinarian. A machine moves your chest up and down for a while, but you never wake up. That's happening, people. Look into it. I just recorded an interview about it, but I wasn't aware of it at the time that I recorded this interview with Dr. Kaufman, but it's coming. And then the lumping in of other flu and pneumonia deaths as COVID deaths, that's just a lot of data manipulation. And even my special lady, you know, she hears me say these things that maybe there's no virus and she thinks that's a little extreme at first, as a person should, as I did actually at first. But then she says to me this morning over coffee, you know, it is pretty weird. We only have 23,000 cases in the state of California. A state of 40 million people. We have 23,000 cases. And then when you look at the official stats, they say basically 800 people recovered and 800 dead. Well, wait a second. You said 23,000 cases. So is it 800 recovered? Is it 20,000 that aren't showing symptoms? Don't you kind of mean 800 recovered and 20,000 without a problem other than a positive test? And still... 800 dead in a state of 40 million. This system does not care about people dying. They go to war over oil. They poison crops with glyphosate. They don't give a fuck, but it's convenient to pretend they do. So we have all these goddamn measures enacted over not that much of a problem, if a problem at all. Because I think those three Ts that I keep bringing up can actually account for 23,000 cases and 800 deaths in this state. I mean, how many of those 800 people were on a ventilator? That's a new question I have. But how many of them were over 80? How many of them had other conditions? In fact, it makes me think that it is all data manipulation because even the official numbers, if you really think about them, don't seem that bad. If there was really a virus out there, you'd think they'd get better results. So I'm only trying to say that I didn't come to these perspectives quickly. I considered this too extreme for a while. I think you can hear it in my voice if you go back and listen to Don and David. And I always want to be cautious with something so serious. I don't want to give bad information to you guys, even though everyone is responsible for themselves always. But I'm pretty on board now. I've done the research and I've come out the other side. It's why I've done several other podcast interviews lately. I've gone on other shows, and I'm typically kind of inclined to not do that a whole lot because I just feel like I'm a generalist who doesn't have a lot of expertise. But I feel like I am starting to really know my shit on this, kind of, or at least more so than usual. So if you've got other podcasts out there that you think I should go on to talk about these very things, let them know, because I'm ready. I'm doing the rounds. <laughs> But I guess that's enough ranting. I'm just so thankful to people like Dr. Kaufman for showing me the way. Of course, today's show is hugely valuable, and I didn't expect us to go into schizophrenia like we did up front. But I also found that really interesting, and anyone who's been listening to the Higher Side Chats for a while would know that I have a personal interest in learning more about schizophrenia and how it could be overcome without turning a person into a numb zombie with brain pills. I won't get into it other than to say, you probably know why I was like, actually, yeah, let's talk about this. I want to get this down. I want to understand this. But we took that detour. And unfortunately, that means that a lot of the great conversation about COVID-19 and viruses in general did get pushed to the second hour. Wasn't my plan, but it is what happened. And I also get kind of sick of apologizing for stuff like that, because my work just can't be free and open to everyone always. It's just not how our world works. But the Plus Show today does contain a lot of great stuff. Aluminum in vaccines and the effects on antibodies, nanometals found in vaccines and offices raided recently. That is pretty compelling. The 5G and EMF data in relation to COVID-19... And Dr. Kaufman brought up a classified CIA document that confirms EMF damage in my studies from the 70s. We talked about the electron microscope versus the Rife microscope. That was the first thing I wanted to talk about, but it's in the plus show now. It's very unique and interesting. We talked about alternatives to quote unquote contagiousness and detoxification techniques for staying healthy in a terrain theory paradigm. I already got. My trace minerals in the mail. And I'm doing the eyedropper in my water every day now. That's why I'm so fired up. You think this is coffee? It's not. It's these damn trace minerals. I'm a new man. But anyway, I think this show and a lot of the shows I do are worth your $8 a month, but I'm going to say that every time. It's just that the stakes for this kind of information have changed. I consider the plus show more valuable now, not because of anything new that I've done, but because of how the world has changed around us. But I hope you sign up, listen to the full two hours of this show, and then listen to the plus-only bubble tea coronavirus show that me and Gordon White did, and it all adds up to a really, really cathartic process of getting past the fear and anxiety that's being thrown at us right now. In fact, We might as well just go there because I already put this on Twitter. So I think I can say it now too, but put in the coupon code. Actually, let's make it Corona because this is a new feature with our more robust system. I didn't have the coupon code potential in the past, but now I'm having some fun with it. Let's use the coupon code Corona, all caps, C-O-R-O-N-A, and get a free week of THC+. It's enough time to at least do the two things I just mentioned and download a lot more. But hopefully you stick around. Either way, sign up now with the coupon code CORONA and you can have seven days in the system at no charge. Make sure you look at the Frequently Asked Questions page because there's really good tips for getting the Plus feed onto the podcast apps that you typically use to listen. It just sucks because I do want people to hear every show. I'm proud of them and the content that's in the second hour, especially when it's needed. But I can't just put out full episodes for free. I did it once recently with David Crow because I did think that was the first time we really covered this and it was important. But this is still my livelihood. So I want to help, but I also want to help myself. And it's a tough thing to balance sometimes because a lot of people are comfortable with take, take, take. And I'd never be able to give them something that they think is worth cold, hard cash, no matter what I do. And that is just unfortunate because clearly they think there's value in this show or they wouldn't even spend their time on it. But it is what it is. I just hope that some people will stick around once they've gotten a free ticket to enter the ride, even ever so briefly. But it also means I really have to thank the people who have put me in this position and made this possible, the people who facilitate that exchange way before I have to beg this much. You guys are awesome. And I take my job very seriously. It is my job. I built it myself. I'm happy with it. But I do not phone these interviews in. Contrary to what you might feel about some of them, that is my best effort, I promise. And I continue to spend the money that you give me on making a better system and tweaking things for better usability. So I hope you appreciate me trying to improve things, even when I sometimes set us back a bit. But it is a process. And I just want you to know, you Plus members are just the best. I have so much appreciation for you. And big thanks to our guest today, too. Dr. Kaufman really killed it. So much to think about, but follow up with his work and stay safe and calm out there as best you can. I've done my part. Your move, COVID criminals, vaccine pushers, and technocratic control mongers. Your fucking move.
2: This is important, hear what I say. I'm trying to tell you. It's not paranoia, not in my head. It's just the hard truth. Knocked on your door while well, I still can. To ask you a question, cause I know your head is still in the sand. Don't be sheep to your slaughter for the rest of your life. Oppressed, oppressed, but you're getting woke. You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die. Tough luck, my friend. Did you get the memo? Can't you see that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our food? Can't you just admit we're screwed? I'm gonna tell you this anyway. It's a scary dark world. Scary every day. Scary dark world. No matter what you say. Scary dark world. Don't think we'll be okay. Can't you see that we're so But we don't have a choice It seems we're stuck here But you can find noses Drown out the noise Now use that altar End up your magic game And listen to THC You know you go with the entities If you ever see the UFO Don't be sheep to your slaughter For the rest of your life, folks you're getting woke. You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die. Tough luck, my friend. Did you get the memo? Can't you say that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our